Hello and welcome to another episode of the Buddhist Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Hartman. I'm Director of Buddhist Studies Online and Assistant Professor of Buddhist Studies at the University of Wyoming. And I'm here today with Dr. Jue Liang, who I'm so happy to introduce to all of you. She'll be teaching our next course for Buddhist Studies Online, BSO 105, Women and Buddhism. And just to give a short introduction to Jue, Jue is a scholar of Tibetan Buddhist literature, history, and culture. She got her PhD in religious studies at the University of Virginia, working on a dissertation entitled Conceiving the Mother of Tibet, the Life, Lives, and Afterlife of the Buddhist Saint Yeshe Tsogyal. She is currently a postdoctoral teaching fellow at Denison University um, and will be incoming assistant professor of religious studies at Wittenberg University in fall 2022. I should also add that um, Jue is a personal friend of mine. We attended our master's uh, studies together at the University of Chicago and then spent time together during our doctoral programs. And I can personally attest that she is going to be a great, great instructor. So I'm Welcome, Joy. I'm really happy to chat with you today. Thank you very much, Kate. And wonderful to be reconnected always with a good friend. And I just like to briefly apologize for my voice and that I'm still recovering from COVID. I'm very grateful I'm symptom free, but I, I thought I would leave this hoarse voice for um, posterity. Mm-hmm. It's a reminder that the you know the sufferings of you know, illness, old age, uh, and death are, are with us always, you know, some of them hopefully more proximate than others. Exactly. Spare snow one. I know. And so uh, I just want to get started today with, you know, getting to know you a little bit. How did you come to the study of Buddhism? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question and a question I have formulated a very long winding narrative about, so I will try to keep it short. I actually did not start in the study of Buddhism. I, my undergraduate major was in Chinese classics, um, mostly Chinese literature and language. And when I moved on to my first master's, pro, um, master's program and my advisor left the university, So I had to find a new advisor um, who studies Tibetan history and Tibetan religions. So he told me, well, you're studying with me, you better start um, learning Tibetan and Sanskrit. So I actually entered the field of Buddhist studies as a student of language. And after learning about Tibetan and Sanskrit, I just become more and more mesmerized by the language, but also by the world those languages inhabit. So I thought I will further pursue my studies and That is where we met at the University of Chicago. And that is also the first time I was exposed to religious studies as a subject and as a academic discipline. So that is something that really also opened my eye to it. I love that, that it sounds like you almost got drafted into the study of Buddhism rather than necessarily, you know, waking up one day and saying, oh, this is what I you know, necessarily want to do. But then, you know, when you found it, I think you had an experience that lots of us had, which is that there's so much exciting and interesting material. And, you know, so throughout your work has been concerned with um, the lives of women, the sort of history of women in Buddhism. Um, when did that interest come in? Had that always been a personal interest of yours or had it been part of your studies at a certain point or did it come in you know, somewhat later in the game? 
Yeah, I think that's actually something I do reflect on uh, quite a bit. And I, I think there is this um, self-conscious, and I am sure anyone who probably identifies as a woman or as a non-binary person can relate, is that there's, there's always this self-consciousness about your own body, about your own gender, and really about your own existence. And you you also start looking for it in, in the subject of your study. But I should also say I did not get into Buddhist studies really wanting to study women in Buddhism. When I started thinking about formulating my own research project, I know I'm really in love with narrative. I know I'm really in love with text. But also I'm, I'm curious about, hey, do we actually have a lot of writings by and about Buddhist women? I think that's the first thing that actually defines my interest is Hey, we actually, we have quite a lot. And at that same time, actually very fortunately, um, one of the biggest collections in Tibetan Buddhist women's life stories was published in 2013 in Eastern Tibet by a group of awesome Buddhist nuns, which I actually hope to uh, talk more a little bit about maybe in the podcast, but certainly um, in the course as well. So I think the coming together of my own existence, really, the lack of um, scholarly monographs, and there's a lot more right now, but at the time it was not enough, but also the coming together of a, this material that allows me to, to delve into Tibetan Buddhist women's lives. I think it is really all of those forces together. So really a meeting of, you know, a general interest, a general sense of the field, um, but then also an opportunity that these new texts had come to light, you know, right at the moment that I'm sure, um, as all of us at that time, were like looking for something to, to dissertate about. For those of you who aren't academics, uh, basically in order to get a PhD, you have to write this, essentially a book about a, a topic that you're the, become the foremost expert in. And it's always really interesting when you start a PhD program, your advisor says, so what do you want to write about? And you say, I have no idea. There's so, there's so much, and I don't even know what there is. So there's always you know, an interesting journey that happens in coming to the study of Buddhism. Um, and I think that this encounter of a personal interest, a sense of a gap in the field, and an opportunity um, of being captivated by these materials is, you know, is a great story always. Absolutely. And what a daunting task at the beginning of your study to say, hey, write a book. Yeah, write a book and you work on that book for the next 10 years. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that led to your you know, dissertation work, which I, I, I talked about at the beginning. So conceiving the mother of Tibet, the life, lives and afterlife of the Buddhist saint Yeshe Sogyal. And so maybe again, for folks who may not be so familiar, um, just who is Yeshe Sogyal? And, you know, why were Tibetans interested in her or writing about her? Yeah, that's a very important question. Thank you. So Yeshe Tokyo and her name literally translated into the wisdom and the ocean that really conquers or the victorious ocean in Tibetan. And she is considered to be the disciple of and the consort, which is jokingly, I will say, a nice way to call someone's girlfriend, but maybe more properly to, uh, to say that someone's partner. So she is a disciple of and the consort to this Indian Buddhist master, Padmasambhava, who is credited to have brought Buddhism into Tibet in the seventh and in the eighth century. So she is quintessential in this narrative of how Tibet become a land of Buddhism and how Tibetan Buddhism coming to being. 
And it is also, she is essential in that sense that women, we see Tibetan Buddhist women is there at the very beginning of, Buddhist, of Tibetan Buddhism. And we'll see in this course, actually, women were also at the beginning of Buddhism, period. They were at um, the Buddhist side, they were the Buddhist mothers, foster mothers, and so on and so forth. So she is such um, an interesting and important figure for the identity of Tibetan Buddhism. And that naturally led me to, to get, want to get to know more about her. What is her story? Why is she important? How do people remember her? And so on and so forth. But one thing, the more I dig into the knowledge that the more I dig into the knowledge that we have about her, then I realized that actually people did not start writing about her and her name does not appear in historical records until the 11th and the 12th century. And we don't even have a full length biography or internet nantar of her until the 13th and 14th century. So for me to, to account for this lacuna in that historical void of a couple of centuries she's said to have lived, and to actual times people started to celebrate her and to remind her actually um, is something that is core in my research project, which is my doctoral dissertation. So I asked the question is why did she become important at that time in this community? And what are the different ways, what are the different identities people associate with her? What's Tibetan about her? What is female about her? And what's human and what is divine? So those are the questions I'm looking to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is such an important thing, you know, in the, the study of the history of Buddhism, is that there, there's a figure, you know, who may, or in certain cases may not, have lived at a certain period of time, and they did certain things, and they, you know, lived their life. Um, and that's important. But then also really important is the memory of that person as told in different kinds of stories. And in a certain way, that story can take on a life of its own um, and change through time and, and come to mean different things to different people. And so um, I understand your project to be essentially you know, parsing through the layers of this story about this woman, um, trying to understand, you know, how and when it came to be told or how and when it came to have meaning. Is that sort of an accurate assessment? Thank you. Yeah, that's an awesome summary. I should just use that on my book jacket to, to parse through the layers. I love that description. I think, yes, indeed, that is the case. And I, I really love how you also differentiate memory and something we might call history, but also pay attention to how memory and historical memory functions is that it is she is actually taken very seriously and as a historical figure by the Buddhist community of her time. And I think the job for us as scholars and people wanting to learn about Tibetan Buddhist history is to, to take that memory seriously and to see how that memory functions in the Buddhist world in 14th century Tibet. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always available to blurb your book um, although, you know, I'm, they always try to get big name scholars for that. So maybe I'm not the person. Um, but so one question I'm sure that you must get asked a lot of the time. Uh, and in, in fact, I think it was asked, you know, a few weeks ago in the live Q&A for our Tibetan Buddhism class taught by Dr. Connie Kasser is, you know, so what is the historical reality of Yeshe Sogyal? Or is that something that we can even know? Yeah, I... I do get actually asked this a lot, and I've I have a diplomatic. 
<laughs> so I, I have a diplomatic answer to it, but also I'll try to give you the, the real deal as they say a little bit is I, I don't, tr- I'm not trying to be glib and say that her historicity or her, the realness, the real historical figure of Yeshe Tokyo does not concern us. But rather, I will say that it concerns us a little bit less, or it, it concerns us and the 14th century Tibetan Buddhist community a lot less when we're talking about her memory of her, the literary tradition that is surrounding her. I think there's very possible that there was a historical figure, and I would be surprised there's no, say, aristocratic um, Buddhist women involved when Tibet became um, adhering to Buddhism during the time of the Dharma kings. We talk about um, Songsen Kambo, we talk about Chisung Dezen, we talk about King Rebajin. So those are considered the three Buddhist kings of Tibet. And I would be very surprised to find out there were actually zero women involved. And I think the memory of Yeshe Tsogyo, again, to, to borrow your characterization of that, is I think responds to and probably is calling for that presence of women at the beginning times of Tibetan Buddhism. And I think the way that she functions is to say that there were women there, there's a way of thinking about women, thinking about her presence in Buddhist traditions as human, but also as divinities. And there's a way to, to bridge that as well. So I think that's something that is more important question to me rather than archeological evidence that say, will unearth a city with magically with the name Yeshe Tsogyo on it. Trust me, I'll be the first one to buy a flight ticket and just go there and take a photo of the city and do all the things you can imagine. But um, I think I can live with the fact that such things might not come to the light in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, you know, so often the case is that, um, you know, questions of origins, you know, particularly when they're long times ago, when we don't have a lot of historical records, are, are at least from the perspective of the historian, you know, which is the kind of academic perspective that we're taking here, you know, we just can't responsibly say one way or the other. And, you know, what would you say to, let's say, like a practitioner who has, um, you know, benefited from reading the life story of Yeshe Tsogyal or has, you know, meditated on Yeshe Tsogyal or has heard teachings, who says, um, I find that troubling that we don't even know if this, this person exists or not. Do you, like, how do you square um, this kind of historical approach with somebody who, as a practitioner, um, might want to find meaning and inspiration in this figure? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's a really important question. And one metaphor I, I just thought of, and I, I do talk about this in my religion class in general, is you can think of the example of Santa Claus. I I hope I'm not destroying anyone's dream by saying that we probably all know that Santa Claus is not real, right? If you think it is real, I think you should stop listening. And I'm sorry, Kate is making a very exasperated expression there. And I feel very bad all of a sudden. But yeah, I, I think you you probably know Santa Claus is not real, but it does not derive, deprive you of enjoyment of, say, celebrating Christmas, does not deprive you of the gift-giving tradition that is associated with Santa Claus writing does he ride the reindeer? I think he does. And riding the reindeer and coming to your house through a chimney and giving you presents. 
I think there is an analogy to be drawn there is I I think even for the Buddha is that when we read the Buddha's life story, when we read life stories of other Buddhist master, I think they're really considered to be a source of inspiration that we can draw from, a lesson that we can learn. And we sure we can learn a lot about maybe Tibetan history and Tibetan literature and Tibetan religions by reading the life story from a historical light. But uh, for me, and I, I think for practitioners, there's also something I think to be said about drawing inspiration to, to read the life stories of Buddha, to read the life stories of Yeshe Tsogyo as role models, as paths that we ourselves can also take on to as well. So I think that'll be uh, my suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this is, you know, sort of, regardless of the sort of historical you know, reality or lack of reality, we don't really know. Um, these these stories that are told, you know, are so meaningful to generations of Buddhists because they communicate certain ideas about what is valued, about um, the Buddhist path, particularly the Buddhist path as it can be traveled by women, and that those things continue to be important kind of regardless of our inability to, you know, pin down a historical date or find, you know, this this steely with the marked dates of Yeshe Tsogyo, um, you know, with irrefutable proof. And so, you know, maybe one question then is, you know, what kinds of values or inspiration or interest was being communicated in these stories of Yeshe Tsogyo? Like, let's say that somebody either in, you know, 14th century Tibet was was telling a story about Yeshe Tsogyal, why were they doing so? How was that meant to, you know, affect their life as, you know, a, a human and as a Buddhist? Yeah, thank you. That's a <clears throat> fascinating question. And I think it's hard to, to talk about this without actually getting into maybe the content of her life story a little yeah. bit. And obviously that is something I'll be very excited to, to talk about in one of the modules, which I actually will be spending a lot of time reading through Yeshe Tsogyal's life story. But um, for any of you who may have um, read the Buddha's life story or may have read maybe a little bit more by of any Buddhist master, especially male Buddhist master's life story, usually you'll notice a lot of elements that are shared in the stories. So there is the childhood, usually sometimes you will read about the miraculous birth or this child is exceptionally smart. There's the youthful learning. There is usually a period where masters will become disillusioned with this world and to generate faith in Buddhism and wanting to practice. And then obviously the life story will contain this content of them going forth to to become a Buddhist, to start their practice and eventually leading toward enlightenment. So think of that as... um, the structure of generally what a Buddhist life story will be like. So the life story of Yeshe Tsogyo contains a lot of these elements. But in my reading of the different versions of especially the earlier life stories of her, one thing I find deeply fascinating and one thing I, I find deeply resonating with me is that the recurring theme of the difficulty of being a woman and how hard it is to, to exist 
as a woman in the Buddhist in sorry not in the not in the Buddhist world but just in the world in general, and the incredible liberative feelings and the incredible freedom that actually was brought forth by choosing to go forward and choosing to become a Buddhist. And I think one example is that um, I think in the version of Yeshitsogyo's life story that we will be reading together in this course. It's about a uh, 70 or 80 page long text. And actually half of the length of that text, so about 40 pages, is in chapter one. And chapter one concerns itself only with the story of Yeshe Tsogyo trying to leave home. So it's a very long, very circuitous path for her to actually just to achieve that freedom to be able to live home, to become her own person, to attain that individuality and independency and actually to start her Buddhist practice. And this is actually not the case when we're reading a lot of the life stories of the Buddha. The Buddha left home, he had all the miracles he could perform. He rode the chariot into the moon. Sometimes you are, I made me think of E.T. when, when that happens. But um, for Yeshe Tsogyo, no, this is um, a majority of her struggle is to establish her independency, which I, I think is something we can probably all resonate with and something we can all think about, especially for those of us who, like I said, probably at the beginning when we started talking about how I got into women in Buddhism is we feel our presence or we feel ourselves as something that does not quite belong in this world on a daily basis. So I think that is something we can all relate to. Yeah, one way that, you know, I think of, um, you know, early Buddhism talks about three different, you know, kinds of, of suffering. There's the suffering of suffering. You get, you know, kicked and you're, you're bleeding. Uh, you have the suffering of change, which relates to things getting lost, you know, that you're ha- not getting the things that you want or losing the things you have. And then there's the suffering of conditioned existence, which is always, you know, this really subtle one that's hard to understand. Um, but the way that I often talk about that with students is, you know, thinking about something like gender, where, you know, I, you know, I'm a woman, you're a woman. Um, I, you know, the experience of being a woman in the world is is one of often feeling constrained that you kind of have this social role that you're expected to fulfill. You know, I definitely was told things by my parents growing up that I feel like I experienced is different than what. The, the boy, my brother was being told um, in school, you're just sort of expected to live up to this world. And as much as you'd love to just be this individual, to be free, to be yourself, you're, you're never outside the confines of gender. And, you know, I start with that as, as a woman because that's my lived experience, but I can talk about this with male students as well. You know, how often were you told growing up, boys don't cry, be tough, you have to be this, this, or this. And you know, the experience of knowing that your actions are always interpreted through gender. They're always sort of trapped within this structure that, you know, constrains you in certain ways. And I say, that's like the suffering of conditioned existence, or at least like that's one way to approach what this idea is getting at, that you're just never outside the structures. And I feel like that that, you know, falls particularly hard on women in certain ways that we might say. Um, and, and I do feel like these, these stories that you're pointing to really, you know, point to that, that Yeshe Tsogyal, 
and the stories convey that her embodiment as a woman meant that her path to liberation, her path to even studying Buddhism, had to be really different. Um, and do you think that this was a story that was meant to be read by women in particular or meant to be read by everyone? Like, who is this story for? Thank you. And I actually wanted to, before I answer the question, just really say how much I resonate with your explanation of what conditioned existence is. And I think that is really profound about the, the Buddhist analysis of suffering is, I think I use the expression of feel like myself doesn't quite fit into this world, feel like there's something that doesn't belong there. And also it could be seen as externally of something that is forced onto you that doesn't quite fit into who you are. So I think that's a, it's a fascinating analysis and it does apply to gender quite a lot for male and female and anyone who identifies in between as well, but it also applies to any other label we, we give ourselves. And kind of going back to the question of the reader of Yeshe Tsogyo's life story, I think one thing I do want to say is that the act of reading, when we come to think about it, is actually quite different across time and across place. And what we do nowadays, what we nowadays call as reading, maybe sometimes you, you have a rocking chair. I don't know if you do, but I do. And that's where I do most of my reading that I find enjoyable. I is wish. You have a, that sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, rocking chair is a, a prerequisite to, to become a scholar. So there I said it. And I think that's where I do my reading nowadays. And I open the book. It is bound in a certain way. It is nowadays, it's mostly written, I think, in English, in Tibetan, Chinese, and sometimes Sanskrit for me. And there's a way I read it. I usually sit down. I sometimes take notes. Sometimes I don't. But usually I read quietly. But such might not be the reading practice or such might not be the usage of how the Nantar or how the life story of Yeshe Tsogyo is actually being used traditionally in Tibetan Buddhist communities. Sure, people might in the comfort of their own meditation huts or in their own shrine room start reading. And again, the book is found differently. We flip through something that is actually loose leaf, that is longer than it is taller and it's something called a Tibetan Pecha. So you will be flipping through the pages and you'll be actually reading in a very different setting. And a lot of times when we talk about reading, we might be reading individually. A lot of times the life stories, such types of Buddhist literature are actually read in a communal setting. So either you're reading it in a class, you read it with your teacher, with your co-practitioners. Sometimes you'll read it actually in a procedure or in a ritual procedure. So sometimes the reading practice is not silent. You not just read, but also you recite. A lot of times when you are reading, you're also given oral commentaries. So I think for Buddhists, at least traditionally speaking, the life story of Yeshe Tsogyo, I think is really meant to be as a part of their practice. And this is a way of saying that this is a role model for you to take. And we have all the oral commentaries for you to, to reflect on how this may relate to your own life. And I think it is meant also to be read by men as well as women. 
but also I think women might relate to her life story more just because of the daily struggles that are accentuated in her life story as a Buddhist woman. So I hope that's uh, not a too long-winded way of answering the question of reading. No, that's great and always such a helpful reminder um, of one of the primary things I get think we get from the historical study of Buddhism is a reminder that our expectations about you know what reading is, uh, what you know anything is, it always has to be contextualized for what that would have meant for people at the time and place. And so, you know, you're not ordering books off of Amazon and reading them in your rocking chair in 14th century Tibet. And what are some of the you know obstacles that Yeshe Tsogyal experiences in in her life story? Wow, where do I start? <laughs> I I think probably one of the first and foremost, and we see this virtually in all of Buddhist women's life stories, is the problem of marriage and the, the issue of domestic life. And so Yeshi Togyo, I mentioned that a big part of uh, one of the life stories of Yeshi Togyo is actually dedicated to her determination of leaving the householder life behind and to her wanting to practice Buddhism. So in order to do so in that version of the life story, she has to really escape from the grips of multiple suitors. So some were more civil and then she they had exchange of gore, which is a Tibetan form of experiential song. So it's changed a couple of songs. She said, no, thank you. Then they're okay, fine. And then just left her alone. But also there were suitors that were more aggressive. And there were this particularly heart-wrenching episode where she was captured by the minister of one of the prince wanted to marry her. She was put into a silk tent. Everyone had a big party because they captured the princess and she was a princess in the minor kingdom in central Tibet. And the prince was very drunk and was elated and very happy that the princess is now quote unquote in his position. So the knife story wrote about, so he went into the tent and the life story didn't say anything about what happened there, but um, I should probably also put a warning here. I don't know if we can do that a little bit later, but I just want to be mindful of maybe not everyone will will be able to uh, to think with me immediately on this story, but um, feel free to do what you need to do for self-care. But the story goes, the, the prince went into the tent and didn't mention anything goes on, but the second sentence is the next morning, the princess had a clear recollection of everything. So she went into a moment of desperation. She sent another song, a prayer really to, to ask for, to petition for the appearance of her master, which she know is predestined to meet with her in her lifetime. And I find that to be a extremely emotional and but also extremely powerful moment is that actually a lot of times you see how much of the struggle women have to overcome emotionally, physically, but also in terms of relationships to in order to leave home and to become her own person. So I think that really exemplifies the, the trouble that she, she has to go through and the struggle that she has to endure. 
And but also interestingly, I think this is one of the passage. And feel free to cut me off if I'm speaking too long. But one of the passage I find really fascinating is that also one of the versions of the story, the version we're going to read together in this course, that um, Yeshitsogil actually had a previous boyfriend, and this is termed as a intimate friend in her life story. And he is actually the last one to part with her when she finally left everything or her secular belongings or her wealth, her clothes, her jewelries, her maids. So she left all of those behind. And this young boy is the last person she parted with. And she, they actually had a very emotional, very loving exchange where they praised each other for their virtues. But also eventually at the end, she said that, well, now I'm actually moving on to a different path. I cannot actually subject myself into any relationship or any types of attachment. So I hope we will meet again in the, in the higher heavens in a different form. And I think there is also for, for us to maybe relate more in our own relationships and on, in our own paths to, to think about Buddhism is also how how secular relationship impact and our path to Buddhism and what is to be left behind. So I think for, for all of us are in secular relation, intimate relationships, that is another thing maybe for us to, to think about is how do we deal with that with our pursuit of maybe spiritual or Buddhist practice. And I should also say, just on a very pragmatic level, I mentioned that Yeshitsogil is a princess in the minor kingdom so she actually didn't really have a lot of financial issues. But also I would like to say that this is actually an issue for many, many other Buddhist women, which we will also talk about in other parts of the course. So for example, when we think about Buddhist nuns, that is um, Buddhist female monastics, usually we'll see their situation as financially and also institutionally more challenged than that of male monastics. And that happens for many reasons, which we will get into in the course, but also financial challenges, um, institutional status, and access to education. So a lot of the issues are actually we see as obstacles on the path for any Buddhist women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe that's a good opportunity to transition to sort of Buddhism and women more generally. Um, because the, the course will, you know, not just focus on your expertise of Yeshe Sogyal, although I'm excited to see that, that that will be a focus of at least one of the modules. Um, but, but, you know, towards the issue of issues of Buddhism, of women in Buddhism, kind of throughout the tradition. So maybe just to sort of orient ourselves, you know, back at at least what we know of early Buddhist tradition, you know, with caveats about, you know, how far our knowledge goes back. You know, what is, do we have any sense as scholars and historians of how women were considered as part of the early Buddhist community? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important question. And I remember you and I had this conversation when we were trying to decide what to call this course. We entertained with the idea of women in Buddhism. We entertained the idea of women at Buddhism. I don't think I quite verbalized what I was thinking when I told you I actually prefer women and Buddhism. 
is because I, I think if we use the term women in Buddhism, which is actually the title of an awesome collection of translated and sources of Buddhist writings on women, that's a topic for another day. But if we use the phrase women in Buddhism, we're assuming that there is a place for women in Buddhism and women has always been a part of Buddhism and that place is always there. It's by default. It is not to be challenged. It is not to be negotiated and everyone's very comfortable with it, which I, I hate to break the bad news, but I don't think that's quite the case. So by using the title women and Buddhism, I'm actually putting those two nouns in a position to one another. As a reminder first, that I think there was always at the very beginning, some negotiation, some discomfort, some compromise as to where is a woman's place in Buddhism? How do a woman find herself in Buddhist communities? But also I want you to highlight the agency of women and the contributions women have made for Buddhist communities in the past and in the present, which is also something I'll be excited to talk about at the very end of the course is the, the emerging of a global sisterhood in contemporary Buddhist communities, which I find to be a fascinating phenomenon. But kind of going back to the beginning and justified, having justified myself of using the title Women in Buddhism, I think one of the key stories is probably for many of you who are familiar with the Buddha's life story and the beginning of some of the early Buddhist women is the story of Mahaprajapati, the Buddha's foster mother. So in the Buddha's life story, her and the Buddha's mother, Maya or Maya Devi was um, said to have passed away seven days after giving birth to the Buddha. So the reason for her passing varies, and we, we probably don't need to get into detail here, but uh, the important information is that uh, Maya's sister, Mahaprajapati, took over the Buddha as her own son and became his foster mother and basically treated him as a mother would to her own children. And Mahaprajapati also Later, when the, after the Buddha having achieved enlightenment and started teaching and gathering disciples, was among the first group of Shakya women. So Shakya is the clan where the Buddha Shakyamuni came from. And Mahaprajapati was among the first group of Shakya women to ask to be ordained as Buddhist monastics in, the, in female bodies, basically as women. And there is a very famous story that Mahaprajapati had to ask the Buddha three times to be ordained as a nun. And the Buddha actually turned her down three times saying that uh, Mahaprajapati don't think about this, meaning that some people say, meaning that this is um, impossible, so don't even bother. And I, of course, there's some magic um, associated with the number three, meaning that it makes something probably in the South Asian context in general, ritually effective. So in order to, to do a ritual, you need to say or do something three times. So there is some a definitive feature of that decision is that a woman's ordination or women's decision to leave home and to become a celibate Buddhist monastic, to become a celibate Buddhist practitioner, it seems to be impossible. 
And then yet it is at the persuasion of a male disciple of the Buddha and the male disciple who is also considered um, emotionally um, very close to the Buddha um, and disciple's name is Ananda. So it is at Ananda's request that the Buddha actually later agreed that, well, okay, I am going to allow women into the Buddhist Sangha, I'm going to allow women to go forth. And so the technical term is to go forth into homelessness, that is to abandon domestic relationships and to, to enter into a state of celibacy. So it's later actually the Buddha changed his mind. And again, the Buddha changing his mind, that's kind of, kind of a big deal. So allow women to change his mind and decided that he will allow women to, to enter into uh, monasticism. And I don't know how much detail we want to get into this, but you can see kind of there is a negotiation happening of, do we allow women to become Buddhist or to become at least the highest ideal of what a Buddhist can be, which is a monastic? How do we allow Buddhist women to become Buddhists? So the Buddha stipulated something we call the eight Guru Dharma or the eight heavy rules, which is again, another infamous set um, in, the, in the rules and regulations in regards to Buddhist women. So there's also the, there's also the eight Guru Dharma that is involved. So there's extra set of rules for women to observe and we can get into more detail in the course, but basically a lot of the, the rationale behind those rules is to, to put nuns under the supervision of Buddhist monks and to require the presence of monks or male monastics uh, with female monastics at important ritual, loca ritual locations. So I think there's always, as you asked at the beginning, there's um, always this tension between the admission of women into the community and in what ways they should be admitted into the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I teach this story as well. Um, any listeners who took BSO 101, which I taught, uh, you know, we focused on this story as well. And, you know, one thing that I confront when I teach that story, you know, here to students um, at Wyoming is that they kind of get super bummed out. Um, like, students will say, you know, oh, oh gosh, I, I didn't realize that the Buddhist tradition had this kind of, you know, what seems to a modern eye like sexism um, baked into it. And, you know, you know, how do Buddhists deal with this, right? Um, and, you know, part of what I'll say is, you know, also... You know, modern Buddhists have a variety of perspectives towards passages like these. There's certain numbers who argue that this is inserted much later by male monastics, that it doesn't go back to the Buddha. Some will say, oh, the Buddha is just responding to societal pressures because the Sangha has to depend on donations from the surrounding community. Or they'll say, there's various ways in which people can respond to this, including some Buddhists will say, yeah, women should take this subordinate position in the monastery. There's a range of opinions. Um, but from the perspective of my students, they hear this and they say, oh, this is such a, this is such a bummer. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I like the Buddha a lot less now. You know, what do you say for, for students who are, one, surprised, and two, kind of dismayed by the kind of, you know, I'll, I'll put a nice word and say ambiguous status of women in early parts of the tradition? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And yes, if we think of the Buddha as someone who have actually done that, 
it's a little bit of a bummer, right? And I, I wouldn't say that's the most impressive thing the Buddha has ever done. And bummer is the technical term, of course. Yes, for the scholarly Buddha. language. Yeah. So, I mean, side note: in the Buddha's life story, there's also a section where um, a group of very attractive women approached him and trying to flirt with him. And the young Siddhartha, the prince, thought to himself, "One must die." So he's been a bummer for a minute. <laughs> so I would, but actually, uh, let's leave that thought aside, and to to kind of go back to your question of. Um, how do we make sense of this? I think you actually already answered your question here is that we can, and this is where I, I find probably the historical study of Buddhism really important in how we might want to make sense and to properly evaluate passages like this when we find in the Buddha's life story, in, in the Vinaya, in the, in the monastic code, and in Buddhist narrative is when did it first uh, start to circulate? There are, I think, textual evidence that um, this passage is probably added a little bit later, and it might not be circulating around the time or of the historical Buddha or the time close to the historical Buddha. So there is um, the problem of later addition. But also, on the other hand, why do people feel the need to add such passages into the Vinaya. So this is a story we find in the Vinaya that is the, the Buddhist code of discipline or precepts. And yeah, I think whoever decided to add uh, this passage to the Vinaya is probably the person who is the bummer. And I'm gonna put my $20 on the table and say, that might be a monk <laughs> and who's having some trouble with putting women into the Buddhist community. And so I think by, by looking at the historicity and the, the textual history in particular of such stories and of such arguments allows us to, to evaluate and to really to make our own decisions of what we take to be the lesson we learn from this story and what we take to be the lesson of our own learning about Buddhism. So I think that is a concern. And obviously there's also different treatment within the tradition itself of, um, let's say, androcentric or misogynistic tendencies we find in, in Buddhist writings and Buddhist practices. And one thing I find really liberating, and especially when we later come into the anthropological or the ethnographic study of Buddhist women is, a lot of Buddhist women on the ground um, are openly defiant of such rules or say that, sure, I, I know about the eight heavy rules, but I, I don't care about it. I don't, I don't think it matters for me in my everyday life. So there is also very much a, a lived aspect or lived sense of how people in Buddhist communities actually deal with this heritage that might be a little bit more contentious or in a proper term, a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, I, I, was, I was going through your, the syllabus for 105 uh, Women in Buddhism and noticed that you have Kim Guchao's Being a Buddhist Nun on there. I actually, when I was an undergrad, did my fieldwork at Karsha Monastery, which she writes about there. Um, and so I, I, I just love that book and I'm so glad that people will be able to read parts of it. But a story that I experienced when I was there was I was living in this, this Tibetan Buddhist nunnery um, in Zanskar in northern India. And one of the guru dhammas is that any monk is more highly ranked than any nun, no matter how long they've been ordained. So a woman who's been ordained 
for 50 years is still junior to a monk who got ordained yesterday. And I was living with the nuns, and one of the nuns who is, you know, quite senior, very much in charge of the nunnery, was at a joint ritual with monks and nuns. And the way that seniority got expressed is that in the seating order. So who was seated where? And essentially this this woman who must have been in her 60s or something about there, sort of um, reflecting the position that a young monk who was about probably eight um, is technically higher ranked to her, you know, ushers him to this seat sort of in, in front of her at a higher place and does this elaborate kind of sarcastic bow to this young monk, reflecting, of course, his higher status. And everyone around laughs, and the nun tells the monk, you know, go get us some tea. You know, and he runs off to go grab tea to bring to the monks. And so in an, it was such a great sort of subversion. This nun was clearly aware that this monk had to be seated sort of in front of her, but she was making fun of it. And also, it was pretty clear who was actually in charge in that instance. And, you know, so I think what that story conveys for me is that people are always operating within structures. Um, and within that, they're expressing agency. They're making choices. They're saying, that doesn't really matter to me. And so there is like a real difference between the kind of textual doctrinal legacy and then people's lived experiences, which is what you're pointing to. Exactly. And I, I love this story. And I, I think it really um, very aptly describes there is something that is prescribed to a Buddhist monastics, there's also the code of conduct, but also there's underground reality, a social relationship, seniority, and in terms of institutional status that people live through every day on an everyday basis. And I, I love the, the sense of humor in this. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite quotes from the, the comedian Michael Che. He says, it's funny because it's true. So I, I think that has um, a lot to say about in the scenario you just described. Uh-huh. Yeah, and um, but it also raises this question, right? Like, you know, so we were talking about maybe, you know, some male monastic put this story about Mahapachapati getting denied three times into the Vinaya. We don't really know. Um, so it raises this question for a historian. How do we get at the lived experiences of women which may be quite different than the textual record, particularly when the textual record is predominantly um, written by not just men, but elite monastic men, who of course are quite different than, you know, perhaps laymen or, you know, people not associated with the sign. Like how do you, how do we, or how do you approach this goal of attempting to recover the lived experiences of women in the Buddhist tradition? Yeah, I, I think I threw some shade on, one Buddhist monk a moment ago, but I also want to kind of retrace myself a little, retract my steps a little bit and to to say that actually uh, not every Buddhist is uh, women-hating. I don't think I need to say that, but I hopefully we're all on the same page. And I, I think in terms of recovering women's presence and recovering women's voice in Buddhist traditions, and especially in Buddhist textual traditions, because outside of books, there's many, many other things that we can do. I think one thing is to, to think about is that for monks and also for a wider group of male Buddhist writers, which is the majority of Buddhist writers, unfortunately, they do not live in the genderless void. And they actually, they have mothers, usually. One would hope so, unlike the Buddha. 
and they they probably have sisters. They probably interact with women at to a different extent. Of course, hopefully they they don't interact too much and too intimately with women because that's bad. But they they know women's experience and they do not live in a genderless void. And we even in a lot of the stories or a lot of the the texts that describe women's experience, we we see the lament coming from women as well as male writers. And one thing this is probably something I should have um, mentioned is that the life story of Yeshe Tsongyo being actually in her first person voice is actually revealed by a treasury revealer who is a man. So I think there is male hand in also in narrating female life story. So you see this kind of um, resonation of women's struggle, resonation of women's life and the particular suffering that is very gender specific for Buddhist women. I think um, male writers are aware of such issues. And when they talk about women, I think we can actually glimpse their own reactions, their own relationships with women in that light. So that is for one thing. And the other thing is we also do have actually quite a big collection of Buddhist women's writings. As early as the time of the Buddha, again, um, we have the, the wonderful, wonderful translation by Charles Hallisey, which every time I read it, it's such a joy of the Terry Gata, that is the, the songs, the Gatas of the Terrys, that is the senior nuns. So it is considered the, the first group of Buddhist women. So they write about their own experiences. They write about their own struggles, but they also write about their own enlightenment. They write about their community. They write about their own study. They also write about reflections on their own body. So we do have writings by Buddhist women from the earliest times onwards. Isn't as many as we would have liked, probably not, but doesn't mean they do not exist. And I think we're also discovering more and more, I think, Personally, I'm biased and I'm very excited that in Tibetan studies, we have the wonderful resource and we have the wonderful people that are still unearthing this kind of treasures and putting them out into the public. So I think that is also something we should definitely pay attention to is to, to look through the male lens or to look into the male voices, but also to, to look for women's writing as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's such a you know, a valuable exercise. And also uh, in your sort of description of women's voices, male voices, and the collaborative efforts that produce them, um, do sort of, you know, provide this useful reminder that, you know, even as we focus on, you know, women in Buddhism, which may seem to sort of be, or women and Buddhism, I should say, which may seem to sort of reify this category, in, in interesting ways, these, it's, taking an overly sort of dualistic approach that, oh, women's experiences are totally different than men's experiences, belies the fact that, yeah, people are interacting with each other. There's people who, you know, don't fit into either category neatly. Um, and, and various ways in which, you know, the picture gets, you know, interesting and complex. And so I'm going to let you go relatively soon. I know that you have a, a busy uh, teaching schedule. Um, But I'm going to lob one kind of hard question at you that I get asked a lot. Um, You know, especially when I'm talking to students or, you know, modern practitioners, they'll say, the Buddha said that, you know, dualistic categories don't matter. I don't think gender matters for my practice. You know, why, 
why do this thing which some people perceive to be divisive, which is to take a lens that looks specifically at women in Buddhism? You know, what's your case for why this is, you know, important, valuable, you know, possibly even really inspirational to a lot of people? It's a hard question. A big yeah, question. thank you for, for saving the hardball question at the end. And again, kind of before I go into that question, I do want to respond to your comments that, yes, I, I think this Women and Buddhism course is open in case that wasn't sufficiently clear to uh, also non-women or non-binary identifying people. And I think you are right in saying that we can take women as a metaphor, as a metaphor of us being conditioned beings. And if you're interested in the way of being conditioned and as a conditioned being, how to practice Buddhism, I think this course will offer you a lot to think about. But kind of going back to this question of Yes, the Buddha did say that gender or any type of dualistic distinctions do not matter or should not matter in terms of enlightenment. And in the ultimate sense, they, they're just not there. And I agree that the Buddha did say that. But also I want to remind people of the distinction and the two truths that the Buddha taught and the indistinguishableness of the two truths. So there is the ultimate truth that is the enlightened aspect of our everyday life. But also there is the conventional truth that is the concrete, the lived reality that we inhabit and we're conditioned by in the everyday basis. So what the two truths teaching tells us is that the two truths do not exist separately. And I think one particularly useful metaphor to think about it is to think about it like a side of the two coin. You really cannot have one without the other. So to say that gender categorically does not matter is to only look at the ultimate side of that coin and to not realize if you flip that over, there's also the conventional side is that gender is much as we might want to do away with it, much as it causes us a lot of suffering due to conditioning, is still very much a operative label that is used on a daily basis in our everyday life. And to ignore that is actually to ignore the, the first noble truth taught by the Buddha, that is the suffering of being conditioned. So I think we, you really need to, to think of gender as to th think of gender as conditioning, to think of gender as representative in some ways of the conventional truths that we're still trying to negotiate on a daily basis in the Buddhist practice. So hopefully that answers the question. I think that was beautifully put. And, you know, as always, when I have these interviews, I'm, I'm jotting down people's answers so that I can use them in my own teaching when I am feeling less eloquent. Um, the inspiration was mutual. Uh, but so th thank you so much, Jue. Um, Jue Liang is teaching um, Buddhist Studies Online 105, Women and Buddhism, which will be opening enrollment soon, but also available for self-study after the live course ends. Um, and I encourage you all to, to take it. I, I think, um, Dre, um, I'm excited to take this course as well. And um, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. <laughs> Chetan is a man, I got
Chetanya 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 Chetanya